In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom. St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Agnes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So continuing our reflections on the Beatitudes in the season of Lent, I want to speak tonight about blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure of heart, and if we have time, blessed are the peacemakers. Who are the merciful? Mercy is not just goodness. There's a lot of kinds of goodness that don't qualify as mercy. For example, if you were to take a friend out to lunch, that wouldn't be an act of mercy, right? Well, depending on your friend, maybe it would be. <laughs> or if you were to repay a loan, a debt, then that would be an act of justice, but not an act of mercy. Mercy occurs when you are dispelling the misery of another. You see in another person some kind of evil, some kind of misery, and then your own heart feels that, misericordia in the Latin, and as a result of that, you desire to dispel their misery. So it's a particular kind of goodness that dispels the misery of others. Now, of course, <clears throat> there is such a thing as false mercy. If someone, for example, were dealing with a woman who had a lot of anxiety because she was pregnant and then recommended an abortion in order to take away her anxiety, that would be false mercy, right? Or if someone were in a painful or difficult marriage, but a valid one, and someone were to recommend that they get divorced and remarried, right, to alleviate their emotional pain, right, that would be false mercy in that case. And in general, whenever someone prefers sin over some other kind of physical or emotional evil, that's false mercy. St. Thomas Aquinas asks an interesting question. He asks whether or not it's possible to commit the sin of presumption. And he makes this argument. He says, the sin of presumption seems to consist in hoping too much in God's mercy. But God's mercy is infinite. And therefore, it is impossible to hope too much in His mercy. And therefore, it is impossible to commit the sin of presumption. St. Thomas responds with the wisdom of the saints. And he says, The one who commits the sin of presumption hopes not too much but too little in God's mercy because he wants to be freed from the punishment for sin but not from the sin itself, which is by far the greater evil. You see that? So anyone who wants to take away the punishment for sin for someone, but does not want to take away the sin itself, or recommends sin as a way of taking away some physical or emotional evil, is not being truly merciful. In fact, they're being very cruel by subjecting that person to an even greater evil. I can't help but think about these, the modern disputes in the church today about people who are 
encouraged by their bishops to go to receive communion even though they haven't repented from a life of sin. They're told that they should continue in their sin and not feel guilty about that, but they should take away the punishment for sin, namely the fact that they are deprived of Holy Communion. This is a false mercy because it treats the punishment of sin as a greater evil than the sin itself. Now, even those without faith can appreciate the goodness of being merciful. Right? You look on the television and even the, the, the hard, most hardened pagans will tell you about how important it is to help the poor and to be merciful and kind to people. But the mercy that this beatitude recommends goes beyond just what natural human reason would tell you. And in three ways. First, the merciful of this beatitude have a longing to dispel the misery of others even to the point of accepting this misery upon themselves, as our Lord Jesus Christ did. He took upon himself the punishment due to our sins. Second, this supernatural mercy extends not only to friends and relatives, but even to strangers and to enemies. We long to be merciful. And then last of all, unlike those who appreciate mercy at the natural level, the merciful of this beatitude are motivated entirely by the desire to help others attain the vision of God, not some merely natural good. True mercy means dispelling the greatest evil, and that is the privation of the vision of God. So these are three ways in which this mercy is truly supernatural. Now, there are many things I could focus on in this talk, this, the seven corporal works of mercy, the seven spiritual works of mercy. But I really want to focus on the mercy that our Lord himself recommended in today's gospel, and that is the mercy of forgiveness. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa Theologiae, raises an objection to the existence of God. He says this, if God exists, he would be infinite goodness. But if one of two contraries is infinite, the other would be totally destroyed. Therefore, if infinite goodness existed, evil would be totally destroyed. But evil does exist, therefore God cannot. You see the argument, the very powerful argument and the argument that most atheists today use to justify their atheism. How does St. Thomas respond? He says, not every evil is contrary to every good. God, in fact, permits evil only to bring a greater good out of it. To say, take a simple example, it is bad for the grass, but good for the cow when the cow eats the grass. So the life of the cow is not contrary to the evil of the grass, right? The cow himself, a greater good, his life is promoted, and that evil is permitted for a greater good. 
Now we can see how this works in God's providence with regard to certain physical evils. We might understand why God is willing to permit physical evils like sickness, natural disasters, hunger, any kinds of physical suffering, in order to permit the greater good of virtue in souls. Because God sees that a human soul endures to eternity. And he sees that virtue is a spiritual good. So God is perfectly willing to permit physical evils for the sake of spiritual goods. For example, where would mercy be in human souls if there were no evil to dispel? Where would patience be in human souls if people did not have to endure evils? Where would courage be if there was nothing fearful? And so forth. So there are certain virtues that couldn't even exist unless certain physical evils existed. And therefore God permits those evils in order to draw forth from human souls these great virtues. Patience, mercy, compassion, care for the sick, generosity, and so forth. But then we are faced with a greater difficulty, and that difficulty is this. Why would God permit the greatest evil of all, which is sin? Because sin involves the very loss of God himself. And therefore, it seems there could be no good that God could draw out of sin. But it's not true. In fact, there are three goods which cannot exist unless sin has existed at least at some time. The first is contrition. You can't be sorry if you haven't done anything you're sorry for. But contrition seems to bring you right back where you were before, so I don't think that contrition is a sufficient good for God to permit the evil of sin. But then there are two other goods that can't exist unless sin exists. One is reparation. You cannot make reparation for the sins of another unless there are sins for another. And therefore, the good reparation is something God wills to draw out of human sinfulness. Many of the saints spent much of their life doing reparation for the sins of others. But then there is the crowning good of all. The good that I think is the reason why God has permitted every kind of evil. And that good which cannot exist unless sin exists is forgiveness. We cannot forgive someone unless they have sinned against us. Sometimes people think, oh, forgiveness means not judging the other person and basically trying to understand their perspective. Oh, you didn't mean it. What you did was not intentional. That's not forgiveness. That's saying there's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness is, you sinned against me. You meant it and you knew exactly what you were doing. And I choose to love you. That is forgiveness. And God has permitted every kind of evil in the world so that that virtue can flourish in human hearts. At the foundation of the world, when God in his infinite wisdom and providence had decided to create the world, 
course, he decided from all eternity, but in that eternal decision. God, of course, had a choice. God could have made a world in which no sin existed. He could have prevented Satan, for example, from entering into the Garden of Eden. And then God looked at that world, perfect, without suffering, without sin. Every virtue was flourishing there. But he looked in that perfect world, and there he did not find forgiveness in human hearts. And so then God looked at another world. It is a world in which every kind of sin is committed, war, murder, rape, abortion, fornication, betrayal, child abuse, bad fathers, bad mothers, kidnappers, every imaginable evil. And God looked in that world and he saw forgiveness. And he said, that is the world I want. Do you see, my brothers and sisters, how great a good forgiveness is in the eyes of God? Forgiveness will be the most beautiful jewel in your heavenly crown. And it is a whole reason why God has put you in this sin-filled world, that you might forgive. He didn't put you in a perfect world, and only for that reason, to draw out of your hearts the most beautiful, Christ-like, divine, God-like virtue, forgiveness. As Jesus himself gave us the example, as he died on the cross, Father, forgive them. So when that moment comes, seize it. The moment you are sinned against, know this is the moment you were created for, to forgive. This is a beautiful adornment of your soul which will endure into eternity. And with every fiber of your being, strive to forgive. Many, many times, my brothers and sisters, the jewel of forgiveness is strewn across your path, and it is always found amidst the thorns. It is always very painful to grasp that jewel of forgiveness. And yet grasp it we must. There's a beautiful story which manifests just how beautiful this virtue of forgiveness is. If you have not read this book, I recommend it very, very highly. It's one of the best books I've ever read myself. It is a book about the Rwandan genocide, written by a survivor. Her name is Imakule Ilabagiza. And the name of the book is Left to Tell. It's entitled, after a line from the book of Job, I alone am left to tell you. And she describes how she lived in this beautiful, idyllic, Catholic home, she and her six brothers and sisters, with a wonderful father and mother. 
Her father was a teacher. They lived in the rural countryside of Rwanda, and they were devoutly Catholic. And then a civil war broke out between one tribe and the other at the instigation of those who had control of the media. A warning to us when we see how the media is trying to influence and distort our perceptions of reality. In any case, one tribe rose up against the other, and she was driven into hiding. A kindly Protestant pastor from the other tribe was not in favor of all the genocide, so he hid her and seven other women in a small bathroom behind a big bureau. He put a, a bureau in front of the bathroom door. And there she and the other seven women lived for three months. And just to stay sane, she would say the rosary over and over and over again, 10, 12 times a day. And one day, she heard through the little window above the bathroom a voice she recognized. It was a voice of one of the neighbors, a neighbor who had been many times to their house and treated very kindly by her father and mother, had come to dinner many times. They had never showed even the slightest disrespect to him. But this time she heard his voice saying, where is that Immaculate? When I find her, I will butcher her with my machete just like I killed her father and her mother and her siblings. I will cut her to pieces. And she felt so much hatred in her heart for that man to whom she had done no evil, and yet he had done such demonic evil to her family. And so while she would say the rosary, whenever she got to the part of the Our Father that said, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, she couldn't say it. She could not forgive this man. He was so evil and so unrepentant. And so she would skip it every time. But every time she skipped it, it pricked her heart, her conscience. And one day Jesus appeared to her in a dream and brought with him her father and her mother and assured her that they were safe with him. And after that, she received the grace to forgive she began to say those words of the Our Father once again. And so when she was finally liberated, they brought her to a prison camp, and they dragged before her the very man who had slaughtered her own family in chains. They threw him on the ground in front of her and said, this is a man who murdered your family. Kick him, spit on him, curse him as he deserves. And she knelt down and she embraced him and she said, I forgive you. And tears of contrition poured from his eyes. Oh, what a beautiful thing the virtue of forgiveness is. For all eternity, it will stand as a testimony, the greatest reflection in human hearts possible of the very mercy of God. Now, sometimes, I am asked by those to whom I preach this message of forgiveness. I'm asked, Father, how do I know that I've forgiven? 
It's a hard thing. Because after all, you can't just change your feelings towards someone. You don't have that kind of control over your emotions. And the first thing I tell them is, forgiveness is a choice, not an emotion. Forgiveness has to do with how you act, not with how you feel. But forgiveness is also like a muscle. And that means usually at the beginning, without some kind of miracle, we don't have the strength to forgive all the way. I compare it to weightlifting. When you're a little scrawny guy, you just push the bar up. It's all you can do, no weights. And then as you get stronger, you put some more weights on there and some more weights until you get stronger. In the same way, we normally don't have the strength to forgive all at once. So what's the bare minimum of forgiveness that we have to show? The bare minimum is this. First, we have to desire the salvation of that person who has sinned against us. And second, we have to do something concrete for their salvation, at least to pray for them. If we do that much, we have met the lowest threshold of forgiveness, enough to get into heaven one day. I knew a woman, for example, who as a little child had been abused in a horrible way by her own father. He was mentally ill. And of course, she couldn't live with him or even be in any relationship with him. But she converted and became a Christian, eventually a Catholic. And she knew she had to forgive. So what she decided to do is that she would write to her father a postcard without a return address every couple of weeks, just telling him how she's doing, assuring her of her love and forgiveness. And that was the way she would concretely show mercy and forgiveness to her father, who never would be able ever to receive it because of his mental illness. But of course, that's not quite yet perfect forgiveness if all we do is want their salvation and we pray for them. If they come to the point where they say they're sorry, and this is a key element, we can't enter into communion with someone until they've acknowledged their sin, and if they refuse to admit they've sinned, then we should pray that they admit their sin because it's good for them to admit their sin. But if they come to the point where they acknowledge their sin, we are obliged to re-enter into a communion with them to the extent that that's possible. After all, you desire their salvation, do you not? You desire your salvation, right? And therefore, guess what? You're hoping that you're both going to end up in heaven one day. And you know what doesn't happen in heaven? People don't sit at opposite sides of heaven and ignore each other. They actually have to be friends. So, if you're just thinking, well, that'll just happen magically when I die and they die. Suddenly we'll feel good about each other or something. Well, there's a place where the magic happens. It's called purgatory. If we don't fully forgive in this life and re-enter into communion 
with those who have asked for forgiveness and shown true tokens of repentance. Then, we're going to have to be purified in the life to come. So, how do you know that you've forgiven fully? I put it this way. Would you feel fully forgiven by God if He treated you the same way that you treat the person you have supposedly forgiven? If the answer is no, you have some room to forgive. If God never initiated a conversation with you, if God never again said, I love you, made you feel loved, would you feel forgiven by Him? So it is the same with us. If we are to fully and completely forgive, then we need to forgive as God has forgiven. And then we have to forget. It says in the scriptures that God has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. When God forgives, he doesn't bring up our past sins again when we sin the next time. He's forgotten all our sins. One time, an old Irish Monsignor said to me, in a pulpit, from the pulpit, he said, when God forgives us our sins, he casts them into the depths of the sea, and then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. <laughs> Sometimes we fish for our own sins. And that's not a good thing. On one occasion, St. Faustina found herself alone in a room with an elderly sister. And the sister surprised her by grabbing hold of her habit and said to her, Sister, I know you speak to the Lord Jesus. Ask him if I've been forgiven the sin from my youth. St. Faustina tried to pull herself away. She said, Sister, ask the priest. You should believe that God has forgiven you. She said, I go to confession, I ask the priest, and I never get any consolation. And she said, Sister, if you will not believe the priest, then why can I, I cannot help you. And she pulled away and ran away, but she assured her that she would pray for her. Well, that night at Holy Hour, Jesus appeared to St. Faustina, and he said to her, go back and tell that sister that all those sins she committed in her youth do not wound my heart as much as her current lack of trust in my forgiveness does. And she went back and she told the sister this. And the sister began to cry like a little child. You see, the only way we can wound the heart of Jesus is by not trusting in his forgiveness. How could he die for us that horrible, agonizing death and we still do not believe he wants to forgive us? That is a horrible thing to do to Jesus, not to believe in his forgiveness. So, we must imitate the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We cannot claim the gift of never having sinned, my brothers and sisters. Innocence shall not be our plea before the judgment seat of Christ. Yet the mercies of the Lord are not exhausted. And so long as we forgive, as we have been forgiven by God, we will receive forgiveness from God to the extent 
that we have forgiven our neighbor. Now let's turn to the beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Who are the pure of heart? When something is pure, like water, it is unmixed with alien substances. Pure water does not have mud. Pure gold does not have alloys. There's a kind of unity and integrity to something which is pure. So what is a pure heart? A pure heart which loves one thing in its entirety without any mixture. A way to understand this is by analogy to pure love. Love is pure when it is directed towards something noble and good in such a way that it is, one, not self-interested, two, not half-hearted, and three, without some ulterior motive. If I love some woman, but I love her for my sake, that's not pure love. If I love a woman, but I love her sister more, right, then that's half-hearted. If I love a woman, but I love her for her wealth, that's not pure love. So pure love implies a oneness of intention, no self-interest, not half-hearted, and no ulterior motives. So in the same way, our love for God must be pure, blessed are the pure of heart. Now, in a particular way, purity of heart can refer specifically to the virtue of chastity. And that means that someone is pure of heart, meaning that they do not suffer from lust, unreasonable um, desires. So, this purity of heart, Let's speak about some of the difficulties in living out this beatitude. The first difficulty we have in living out this beatitude is that we are attached to sin. We're inclined to sin from, due to original sin. And so we're inclined to love creatures more than we love God, and in general to love lesser goods more than we love greater goods. And this is not surprising because we know lesser goods better than we know greater goods. And sometimes we think that a good we know better is a better good. And that's not true. I gave you the example the other day. If you offer a three-year-old child a choice between a bowl of ice cream and a fully paid for college education, he will choose the ice cream every single time. He knows the good of the ice cream. He has no idea what a college education is. And therefore he thinks the good he knows better is a better good. And we are the same way. We have the tendency to judge things as if we are the center of the universe, as if our knowledge were to determine reality. So this is a problem we have. So the process of purifying our hearts is a process of seeing reality from the perspective of God rather than from our own limited perspective. Now the principal means of purifying our hearts are three. The sacraments, prayer, 
and penance. And two sacraments in particular go along with prayer and penance. The sacrament that goes along best with prayer is the Eucharist. Many of you were already here for Eucharistic adoration or upon because prayer before the Blessed Sacrament is a special kind of prayer that purifies our heart by faith. On the other hand, the sacrament, which goes along with penance, is not surprisingly the sacrament of confession, which is also known as the sacrament of penance. So what penance does is it separates us from an inordinate desire for created goods. And prayer unites us to the higher goods, to God himself. You see that? So purity of heart involves being separated from the lower goods and being joined to the higher goods. Penance and the sacrament of confession separate us from those lower goods. Prayer, especially prayer before the Eucharist, joins us and unites us to the highest good. And those are the primary means by which our hearts become purified. Now, our Lord, in today's Gospel, taught us the way to pray with the Our Father. And in late St. Luke's Gospel, after the Our Father, he adds two conditions that we should have with our prayer. Our prayer should be confident and persevering. And then he tells a parable about perseverance in prayer. This is important for all of us if we are to achieve true purity of heart. Here's the parable Jesus tells. Which of you has a friend who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet, because of his perseverance, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In this parable, it's midnight. Midnight is a time when the sun is on the opposite side of the earth. It's the darkest time of the night. And so too, there are times in our prayer life which are the very darkest times of our life. It is midnight. We feel the desolation and no consolations from the Lord. And every consolation, every bit of light is withdrawn from our hearts. So the Lord is describing the most difficult and painful times of prayer. And then we go to God and we say, lend me three loaves. That is, please, let me see the triune God. The Trinity is like food for the soul. The deepest longing of the human heart is to see God, the three persons of the Trinity. And yet, he seems to hear from within, within the closed doors of heaven, 
go away. Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot arise and give you anything. These are times in our prayer life when we seem to be rejected by God. We seem to hear the voice of God saying, stop praying. And not only that, the door is shut. Christ will not save you any, any longer. And my children, the saints, are resting with me in heaven. They cannot pray for you either. No one can help you. This is what a soul hears in this darkest time. And what is the advice of our Lord in these times? He says, do not give up. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his perseverance, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. We might think that we have to be friends with God in order to be heard when we pray. But Jesus says the opposite here. Jesus says it doesn't matter if you're in a state of grace, if you are the friend of God or not. Persevere. I tell you, God will give you everything that you need if you persevere. We do not hope from the Lord for good things because we are good. We hope for good things because He is good. If we were to hope in our own goodness, we could hope for very little indeed. But because we hope in the infinite goodness of the all-merciful God, we can hope for everything, even God Himself. And no sin and no guilt and no darkness in our soul could possibly discourage us from praying. This is what the Lord wants from us when we pray. And this kind of prayer purifies the heart. So, prayer is very much like a relationship. As long as prayer is done in pure consolation and we feel good about it, we're kind of like a young couple who really like being around each other. It always feels so good to be with each other. But then, who do you really love? Do I love you? Or do I love the way you make me feel? Is my love really for you? Or is it really for me? As long as in any relationship, we're getting so much out of it, we feel so good about it, we can never be sure if our love is pure. That's why it's a really important moment in the life of a married couple when they really dislike each other. <laughs> it's a really important moment. Because at that moment, you can know, it's not for me, I'm not loving myself, I'm in it for you. And you should be grateful to God for those moments in your marriage when things are really bad. And you can prove to your spouse and to yourself that you love them for their sake. 
Well, the same thing happens with our Lord. As long as we feel consolations in prayer, we don't know if we love Him or we love the way He makes us feel. I pray because of me. But in those times of darkness when we feel no consolation, in fact, we feel even rejected in prayer, then we know. We know that we are loving God Himself. Now, there are forms of penance that we can do, active forms of purification and so forth. But there is a work of purification which can only be done by God alone. The theologians refer to these as passive purifications. And they consist of two different, what are called dark nights of the soul. The first dark night of the soul is called the dark night of the senses, and the second, the dark night of the spirit. What characterizes the dark night of the senses, the first of these two dark nights, is that we lose any sensible consolation pertaining to the things of God, the worship of God, prayer. It's as if everything repels us. We find it disgusting and loathsome, a burden. And nothing can console us. And we feel rejected by God. Our emotions are all pointing us away from God. And in times like this, we must stay the course, and it's very important that we find a Holy Spiritual Director and we faithfully obey that Director and do not trust our own emotions on this. We faithfully persevere in prayer through this passive purification because only in this way can God truly make our hearts pure and prepared to see Him. Well, if we make it faithfully through this first dark night, then there's a second dark night, which is even more difficult. It is called the dark night of the spirit, and it's characterized especially by temptations against faith. During such times, the teachings of the church seem to be nonsense and obviously false. Our whole reason for becoming Christian and remaining Christian seems to be removed. And God does this so that our faith will not stand upon any human rationale, no apologetics book, no miracles, just solely upon the power and promise of Jesus Christ. So long as a faith makes sense to us, we can't really be sure if we're accepting it based on our own judgments about what seems reasonable to us, or if we're accepting it purely on God's word. But a soul who has passed through this dark night of the spirit is purified to such a degree that he becomes certain that his faith rests upon God alone and not upon his own human way of thinking about things. This is a very great gift and it's a very high purity of heart and mind which we need if we are to be perfectly pure in the sight of God. So, in this way our hearts become pure. We seek out only God's will for us. 
We do not seek out comforts. We do not seek out reasons. But we become just like little children who just simply, completely trust in their father and their mother. I have only a few minutes to speak about the peacemakers, so I will just say a a couple words about the peacemakers. The peacemakers are those who have such interior order and peace within themselves that they are able to establish peace in those around them. And St. Thomas Aquinas points out that the gift of the Holy Spirit, which corresponds to this beatitude, is a gift of wisdom. The wise man is the one who sees the most profound order in things. He's able to see all of reality and the relationships among things in light of their first and most universal cause. The wise man knows the answer to the ultimate questions, why? And so also the peacemaker, he's able to see the most profound order and moral things. He's able to find solutions that other peoples cannot find. He's able to establish an order that others cannot see. And therefore, it is especially appropriate that one with the gift of wisdom should be a peacemaker. This last of the Beatitudes is last for a reason. It comes at the very end of the spiritual life. No one should think of themselves as capable of being a great peacemaker at the beginning. But if we persevere in living out these Beatitudes, if we beseech from the Lord all the graces that he wills to put into our hearts, we open our hearts step by step through each Beatitude, embracing the spirit of poverty, meekness, mourning over our sins and the death of Jesus. If we hunger and thirst for justice, if we are merciful and forgive, if our hearts are made pure by prayer, God will grant us this great gift of wisdom and bring to a world and a church which is so desperately in need of peace, the wisdom and the order which God wills to establish in human hearts. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. Now, mighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in the peace of Christ. Peace be to God. I thank all of you for coming. I assure you of my prayers. I fly away tomorrow now to Houston to give another parish mission in another parish on another topic. (laughs) Please pray for that mission and pray for my safe travels till I get back to my abbey at the end of the week. And I assure you of my prayers as well. Thank you.